this is the Lacare Cast. Hello and welcome back to Lacare Cast. Jeff here with Matthew Bradford, and we are returning with part two of our look at Silverview. This episode, we're going to be focusing on the settings and locations of the novel and how they play into some of the themes of the book. So, Matthew, East Anglica. Anglica? Am I saying that even right? I don't even know. I think it's East Anglia, right? Anglia. Okay. Well, this is a place on the eastern coast of England, and it's a place that I had no clue about until reading this book. So that's that's on me. I admit it. But what did you think about this? Because, I mean, that's the primary setting of this of this book is in this small town there. Um, where we have Julian, who we talked about last episode, who is a young bookseller who has left the hustle and bustle of London finance to open a bookstore in this small town. Yeah, the town is is definitely a, a, a character in this book. It's a memorable setting that we get to know through only a few local businesses, more or less. But that that works, you know, Um and then we get to know the sort of locales of the town, the waterside strolls, the raininess. Um, it, yeah, I got a real sense of place from it. It feels like a very familiar setting in some ways. I grew up on uh, on on the shore, you know, in, in Connecticut. And there's sort of like a certain kind of small town life that, that comes in shoreline towns. And I imagine that that part is very familiar to Le Carre from living in Cornwall, uh, even if that's on the, on the other coast. But, um, you know, I think there's something inherent in all seaside towns and, and it's, it's conveyed here in this book too. Yeah. I mean, you definitely get a sense that it's a small town. These are all people who know each other and have that back history with each other. As we meet just a few, we, we meet only a handful of the local residents, but when we do, they, they have that kind of small town feel to them. There's the antique shop that we spend a while at and some colorful characters there. There's the, the restaurant that everybody goes to the, like the, the one restaurant, you know, is the way that it feels when they talk about it, just like there's the one bookstore and the one antique shop. You know, this is a very small community where everybody knows each other. Um, one of the fun things is Julian is talking about trying to start some sort of literary festival there and things like that. <laughs> right. Which all these small towns have things like that, <laughs> you know, but it's <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, and the name of the bookstore was the old Mar- the ancient mariner when he took it over. And when Edvard first introduces himself to him, he calls him the young mariner, which I, I thought was uh, a funny, uh, a funny introduction, but also just tells you as book collectors, you know, we're both book collectors. Doesn't that tell you a lot about a town? If it's bookstore is called the, the ancient mariner. Like I feel like that alone gives me a lot of information about what this town is. Yeah, well, and just the fact that Lacare decides to set a, a significant portion of the book in a bookstore. I think knowing that he would visit the the local bookstores in uh, Cornwall, you know, and 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 stop in there. I I think there is you get a very sense that this is uh, if nothing else a a little bit of a love letter to bookstores and booksellers, right? Yeah, absolutely. And to independent bookstores specifically. 
yeah, I, I wondered again and again to what degree this bookstore was based on that one that he was famous for going into and signing books in in his own uh, town. And maybe it's not at all, you know, uh, but I, I just kept wondering as someone who loves bookstores and seeks them out in any town I go to. Yeah, I was wondering if he was drawing from, you know, I mean, he could have been drawing from tourist experience as well for an actual East Anglian uh, bookstore. But, uh, you know, I I know a few bookstores from my own life that would go into any bookstore that I was creating in another place. So, yeah, I wonder if it was based to some degree on his own, like, local stomping ground bookshop. Yeah. Well, and I also love the fact that it's like a bookstore run by somebody who's clueless. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, is fun. Yeah. So Edvard has this grand idea to create the Republic of Literature in his basement. And Julian is already struggling with the fact that he may not be well read enough to be a bookseller. <laughs> and yeah. then when when Julian, uh, oh, I'm sorry, when Edvard sort of gives him a list uh, of of books that should be in the Republic of Literature, he begins reading them and it's sort of Edvard opens up the, uh, the world to Julian, this literary world. And that's a big part of why these two people lock together. You know, part of it has to do with the familial connection that, that Edvard knew, knew Julian's father, but part of it also has to do with, this is a teacher. This is a mentor figure who is going to show me the ropes that I need to run a bookstore. The Rings of Saturn by Siebold is the first book that he recommends to him, saying that it should be in any East Anglia bookstore. I haven't read The Rings of Saturn. Did you seek it out or any information about it based on this reading this book? I did, actually. I've, I started reading it. I have not finished it, but it's a very interesting book. It's very different. I mean, it's basically this this author, you know, it's not stated that it's the author, but it's given that it's kind of from his point of view and it's using this walk in that area to kind of go off on all of these tangents. Sebald or Sebald, I, 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 there's a documentary that's actually very interesting that I um, was watching about the rings of Saturn. It's like follows the footsteps of the rings of Saturn and the places that he goes. And it has a variety of different folks that have, have read the author greatly and talk about his influence and, and what he was doing and show various places in that area. And it does seem like it's a very, it's a very, a big touchstone for a lot of people and, and, and his work. And it was pretty interesting. I'll put a link in the, in the show notes to it for folks to check out. That sounds really cool. Yeah, no, the book definitely Silverview made me want to read The Rings of Saturn. And, you know, if it had been more than a month since it came out before we recorded this, I would have too. <laughs> but uh, I just haven't had that chance yet. I'm glad you I'm glad you did. So you could provide some of that. Now, did you think was there a literary connection between this book and that one? Did it seem to have any um, direct relationship to the way this story unfolds? people smarter than I in this documentary were talking about the themes in the rings of Saturn. And, you know, one of the ideas there is it's kind of looking at his work in general, looked at like how civilization has been in a decline for a long time. And that book in particular was looking at, you know, English civilization in decline. And so I think you could definitely draw a theme from that to Silverview. Definitely. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, I mean, because the way it's presented, it does sound like he's offering us a Rosetta Stone of sorts to, uh, 
to not not that this book is is particularly oblique, but to you know finding figure out more about its themes. And yeah, and England in decline is a major theme of this book, and particularly a Secret Service in decline. Now, what about the setting? Since we're discussing settings, like did did the setting in what you read of Rings of Saturn, since it's the same setting here, did it, did it ring familiar to the way that it's described in this book? Or yeah, I mean, there's so many. I uh, I mean, that area was they had a ton of airfields there that were used to bomb Germany during the war. And there's all sorts of these abandoned airfields. That's a, a major setting for when Edward and Julian meet on the shore, right? We see these abandoned military kind of outposts there. Um, and that's definitely a part of what, where he's walking in his, in the, in the rings of Saturn in the, in the areas that he's seeing. So. And that's a major theme in this book, like between the ones that we see in in the local area where where the bookstore is and one that one that's still active that uh that proctor goes to visit and just some others that like proctor notes a lot uh, in the area where he's supposed to finally meet uh edvard at the end in an ill-fated meeting but um yeah again and again we're talking about these sort of ruins of a militaristic past and obviously an American-dominated militaristic past, since all these airfields, for the most part, were American airfields, you know, both in, in World War II. Obviously, there's both British and Americans flying out of there, but that's when American servicemen first invaded England, you know. And then in, throughout the Cold War, when America maintained nuclear air bases there uh, from which to strike against the Warsaw Pact in the event of World War Three. And it's that is where the theme of the book really gets encapsulated in location, I think. At one point in a very memorable chapter, Proctor goes to a active air base, but still but one which still manages to be a relic, even if it's active, because it's sort of the last, you know, one of the last active ones we, we yeah. uh, are told. And this is why, so I mentioned this visit when we were discussing characters last week, but I wanted to save talking about it to discussing settings because it's the setting more than the character who's memorable yeah. from this. And when when he arrives, when Proctor gets there, there's a little line here that really jumped out at me thematically. Sentries in battle fatigues cradled their automatic rifles like swaddled babies. Above him, the flags of Great Britain, the United States, and NATO drooped flaccidly in the mid-morning sun. I, I think that <laughs> sentence right there, <laughs> that's where Le Carre sees Britain and America and NATO at this, at this stage. You know, there's the Cold War is over. There isn't a need for NATO. Britain, again and again, is, is referenced as a depleted power in this book. And Le Carre's son speculates in his afterward that that may have been part of the reason that he wanted to wait until after his death for this to be published because specifically the secret service is depicted as almost a dinosaur you know as as a relic of the age of these air bases uh and something that no longer knows its mission or knows what well, I mean, that says it all. That no longer knows its mission. So this airbase it, it has a deep underground chamber where Proctor goes down to meet with 
the security, the head of security on this base because he needs information. But you mentioned last week how he takes on different identities in his various interviews. And here he's got to be careful not to be himself because he's known to the American security. So this is an airbase occupied by both British and American personnel. Yeah. And this chat of security is irate when Proctor walks in. What are you doing coming here? What if the there there are agency people here? You know, like they're gonna know. So he's worried that his CIA counterparts are gonna realize that uh, that the British mole hunter is coming to the base, and then there's gonna be problems. You know, that's gonna set off all the klaxons because that's Proctor's job. You know, everybody who knows him knows his job. Even when he interviews the spy couple, he claims he's doing it historically. Yeah. And she says, oh, you're the history boy now. But it's clear that they both know, you know, if he's talking to you, someone is suspected of something, yeah. you know. So this this head of security on the base does not want to be seen with the number one mole hunter in the service, you know, <laughs> by his CIA counterparts, because then there's going to be a lot of explaining to do. Yeah, that whole sequence was great. I, I loved that that whole thing where we see this back and forth as as Proctor is pulling this information out. And, and I think the setting is what makes that bit work. If he had done that in an office someplace, it wouldn't have mattered it as much as as having this kind of Cold War airfield as the setting that he's able to unfold this all. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a very unique setting for Le Carre. You know, we talked about a lot of repeated themes, repeated archetypes in this book, but this is one that we haven't seen before. I don't believe yeah. we've ever been on, I mean, obviously we've been on Southeast Asian air bases, but that's very different. I don't think we've ever been in a secret establishment in England like this where, you know, you have this underground bunker, you know, it's almost more like something out of James Bond or Quiller. I mean, these are real things, obviously, but we associate this kind of underground base more with the more fantasy end of the spy genre than than with John le Carre or the Avengers is what I think of, because there's so many like the hour that never was on a, on a um, air base. There's so many Avengers set on these abandoned air bases or where Steed has to go undercover uh, at, you know, like an active one as a, dealing with the head of security. So that's the, that's the main touchstone. I mean, there's all sorts of throughout spy fiction. We'll see these again and again, but we haven't seen them in the works of John le Carre that I can recall. So it's really interesting that the first time we do is not in their heyday. You know, had he written about this base during the cold war, it would have been very, it would have meant a very different thing, you know, because it's a, a high tech setting, at the vanguard of of the cold war you know these these are where the the planes will take off from to go and and drop the nukes on the enemy but after the cold war it takes on a very different meaning you know and it really becomes this sort of like ghost town of this is the remnant of that past war you know and so to go back to the wider theme we're talking about the remnants of two past wars in in East Anglia in general, the, some of the other hulking wrecks, you know, of, of bases that, that are witnessed are just the World War II ones, the, the remnants there that are seen around the countryside, and then the Cold War ones like this. This is looking at, and this is his view of, of Britain at this time, you know, that 
flaccid flag, you know, kind of says yeah. it all. I mean, the the base feels like a zombie base, right? It, it yeah. kind of continuing onward without any sort of real need or reason for being. Totally. Is the way that you get the the impression from the novel. Yes. So I wanted to talk a bit about the houses that we see, because I think it's interesting to contrast Proctor's home and the, and the kind of sketch that we get of that versus Silverview, which is our the name of the uh, the book and is like kind of hanging over the, the entire novel. Yeah, it's a very different kind of title. You know, it, it sounds more like a James Bond title on this Silverview, Skyfall, Silverfin, you know, these sort of one word names of places. And even one word titles are rare for Le Carre, right? Did uh, yeah. There must be another, but I can't think of one right now. Yeah, maybe there wasn't. So this may be the first one. So So clearly the place is important. And Silverview itself is representative of the culture that Edward Avon has adopted because he is not English by birth. When we meet him through Julian, I think the omniscient narrator asks, is that a hint of an accent he detects? So there's hints that he is is something other than English from the beginning, and then this becomes a very important part of his character as we learn more. So Silverview is his wife's family estate, but it's been renamed, which is sort of crucial to Edvard's identity and where he sees his place in England, I think. Right, because he was the one to suggest the name Silverview, yeah. right? Yeah, do you remember what her, what his wife's uh, father's name was for? Uh, I don't remember what it yeah, had previously been called. I didn't write it down, unfortunately. Is it Nietzsche who he took the name from, right? Is that the I Right, yes. That's something I didn't research, so I know zero about that. So I, I'll, I'll look to you for the clarity on that one. Don't look to me for philosophical input. You said in your introduction, I have an encyclopedic knowledge of spy fiction. That's very different. You know, for philosophy, <laughs> you, you need a different guest. Um, but, uh, but I think it's important that Nietzsche is not a British philosopher, you know. Um, yes. This is Edward is a European, you know, like he is a Pole by birth, right? Is that yeah? But he, but he is not a citizen of Poland. He is not, he doesn't seem to feel a strong Polish identity. He's sort of the way that Smiley describes himself at the end of A Legacy of Spies, a citizen of Europe. And, you know, this book was written before Brexit, but which, which is what Le Carre was sort of railing against in A Legacy of Spies. But I think it's, that was on theme. That wasn't a new theme for Le Carre in a reaction to Brexit. Throughout his post-Cold War books, so even going back to his Cold War ones, he's been he's been a citizen of Europe. You know, uh, certainly in in a perfect spy, in absolute friends, um, we see again and again these English characters who are exposed to the wider European world, and of course to German literature, which is a big, which meant a lot to Le Carre, who spoke German, and and to Smiley, who, you know, retreated to his German poets every time he finished his whatever case he was working on, and Anne had left him. Um, so, yeah, I think European literature and European philosophies mean a lot to Le Carre and his characters, uh, and especially to Edvard. Yeah. 
this house, you know, I, I, I really do like the kind of contrast that we get of Proctor's house and Silverview because Proctor, it's like filled with this joy, even though there is this tension between Proctor and his wife, mm-hmm. it still has this life to it yeah. that we see versus Silverview where Edward and Deborah obviously have this tension, but there's, it's just, it feel it's she, Deborah is dying and you feel that decay and death kind of is has invaded this this house, right? Everything that's used to describe it talks about how it's it's just not been touched since her father was there, right? Deborah's father lived there. There's a sense of this yeah. stuff has just been left. It's kind of falling apart. Yes, and to the main scene that we see Silverview in is a horrific dinner scene. Like it's a <laughs> <Yes>. where. <laughs> Deborah through uh, Lily invites Julian to dinner because she's learned of Edvard's connection to him that he's spending time at the bookshop and she has her own suspicions about what he's doing there. But as far as Julian knows, he's just building this Republic of literature with him. So, so he's, he's invited, but the, even though he knows Edward, well, the invitation doesn't come from Edward never invites him to his house indeed edward never tells him he has a daughter he's very surprised to learn that uh that edward who he's gotten to know fairly well by this point has a daughter but the daughter conveys her mother's invitation to julian to come to the house and it's yeah you're right it's it's the opposite of proctor's you know familial abode where it's filled with with you know family energy these multiple generations of proctors although Lacari also hints that that's a facade in some ways. You know, he gives us an introduction to them as sort of these hypocritical liberals. You know, um, <laughs> this idea that they would never admit to voting. There were certainly no, uh, and certainly no one in the family had ever voted conservative or would admit to it. You know, something like that. Uh, and and how they how they would never describe themselves as upper class, although he shows us that they do have a lot of money, but it's in trusts. So they can, and you know, he says that when they send, uh, he lists the schools that they'll send their kids to, which I'm sure mean much more to a British reader than they do to as Americans. But then he's like, or when like merit or situation dictate a a state school, (laughs) um, you know, like, well, because he after has this long line of, uh, working for the government being in the secret services, right? His family. Yeah. But I think while there is pride in that lineage it's undercut in the introduction in a way that the the house is undercut a little bit too but yes the what the house is filled with is is our real familial bond whereas what silverview is filled with silverview is like a gothic you know and that might yeah. be why the title of the novel is is a place name it's like northanger abbey you know like they when when julian goes there like you said it's it's a decrepit falling apart place with a falling apart family and a dying matriarch. And so Deborah is brought downstairs by her nurse to preside over this, this terrible dinner. And Edward is retreating into himself is not at all the character that he is outside of the house, you know, inside the house, he seems like a different person uh, certainly much less gregarious and Lily is almost like a prisoner here. You know, she's, um, as we mentioned before, she won't 
there's a lot of things she won't tell her parents about her life outside the house, but inside the house, she's completely subservient to, to her mother, particularly because of her mother's condition. And the reason that they, they had been estranged for a while, the reason she's come back to the family is specifically to take, to take care of her dying mother. But there is this kind of like, in the whole English Gothic tradition, you know, of like uncle Silas there, it's like she, she is now bonded to the dying mother who won't let anyone forget that she's dying, you know? And, and that's an interesting, she's almost like a prisoner in this house. Yeah, no, for sure. She's the, the governess, right. That's trapped in the, in the Gothic home, Right. Uh, against her will nearly, nearly, right? So. Yeah. Well, the dinner scene is one you're just squirming when you read yeah. it. It's like it's the, a dinner you would never want to be at. You know, although it did harken back to an earlier dinner scene in Le Carre's uh, uh cycle for me, which was uh, Murder of Quality, where Smiley is uh, a present at an equally horrible dinner that's I think given in his honor while he's he's visiting I don't remember if it's Fielding who who hosts it or uh, I'm not sure, but it's Shane Hecht, this vile local personality who dominates it and puts down Smiley throughout the conversation. And that's what happens in this conversation, too. Uh, Deborah occasionally puts down her husband. We're not sure why. It's hinting at, you know, the their relationship is the, the mystery of the book, you know, and it's hinting at that here. But she also certainly puts uh puts her guest in in a very uncomfortable position again and again like like smiley was put in in that earlier dinner scene and you just squirm when you're reading it um you know it's, yeah it's fun to read but you don't want to be there no and and you you this is the time where you really felt bad for lily yes. as a character because you just see her just I don't know. I maybe it's just me, but you know, having been in that position where you're like, "Oh, why are you saying that?" kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. right? Why are you doing that when you're with somebody? So, yeah, uh, it's just that that awkward, awkward scene that everybody. I, I'm sure everybody's been in a, at, at a time like that, and yeah. you can definitely see it playing out here. So, she grabs his hand. She grabs Julian's hand under the table, which, you know, might seem like in in some of Le Carre's other books, there's sort of love stories that bloom too fast, you know, uh, women who fall too readily for the, for the older men or, and not that Julian is, is an older, is much older than her, you know, they actually of the same generation, but that's not the case here. You know, I, I could see how someone might think at first, Oh, this is, you know, the too fast room. But to me, no, this is an act of get me out of here. You know, it's like yeah. that governess, like you're saying, this is, there's a handsome stranger who's come to take me away from this spot. You know, I'm going to not, not that she is a, um, a non capable character herself. Right. You know, it's not she, a damsel in is, distress. Right. Yeah. But still just another, another regular human who isn't locked in mortal combat like her parents are. I can see absolutely why she gra- grasps his hand under the table. Oh yeah, you know? he's more it's... like a life preserver than anything else, right? Yeah, you know, kind of like. And even the the meal that's served, uh, I mean, it's funny. She uh, Lily tells tells um, Julian before he even comes that they'll be eating fish because her mom will only eat fish, but her father can't stand fish. So, you know, we start with something that you know is just like Edvard is a stranger in 
in the home in Silverview, but who's renamed it, who's tried to put his mark on it. He's not served the food that he's, you, you know, he's very much made to feel the outsider that he is in his own home. One of the other things I loved about the settings here is we get a couple of scenes where people are delivering letters to various safe houses or cafes, you know, like just that idea of we're we're going real old school here with our our espionage. Yeah. There's a couple of those things and it's, um, it opens a very dramatic scene that it opens with is, is Lily going to Proctor bringing a letter from her mother for Proctor's eyes only that she has to wait around for him to read and be the only person who carries his response back to her. And then that's echoed later on when Edvard assigns Julian the same task and Julian has to go convey a letter to a woman Edvard has implied he's having an affair with, but spy readers will quickly discern a different relationship between them. But I'm not sure. I, I don't think Julian grasps at that time that he's actually being a conduit for espionage, you know, that he's bringing yeah. her secrets and, and he's conveying a coded response to Edvard from this beautiful woman who he meets in London. Yeah. So I, I did like those kind of journeys to London, to these various meeting spots that we see. I thought that was a, a fun little kind of scene setting as well. Yeah. And so. it's really nice how they're reflections of each other, those yeah. two scenes. You know, finally, the last kind of setting that we get is we actually end up at SIS headquarters. And I, I'm trying to think, is this the first time that we've seen that referenced or was it referenced in A Delicate Truth as well? Do you remember? Oh, good question. I don't think it was in A Delicate Truth. I mean, it, it certainly was in Legacy and in Agent, but yeah. this was written before that. So this might be the first instance that he actually did refer to that is a location right Right. well it's interesting because i think of it as from the tailor of panama because of the film it's very memorably used in in the film the tailor of panama but in the book i don't think even in flashback we don't see andy osner oh yeah we do in flashback see him but it's not it's not yet when the book was written i don't think it would have yet legoland right it was explicitly felt like that was the the location there versus where I feel like in previous ones, it was a little more oblique. More of a circus, you know, like the circus location. Yes. Which is, yeah. yeah. Although it's interesting because in Le Carre has another little trilogy. You know, people think of the Smiley books as his only series, but there's another trilogy in there, which is overlaps with Smiley, which is the Russia House, the Secret Pilgrim with Smiley and the Night Manager. Uh, and those three books chronicle the transition from the circus to the service in Le Carre's world, because it's referred to as only the service in, in the Russia house. But then those same characters interact with Smiley and other people from the past circus in The Secret Pilgrim. And we learn about, you know, those days of, of the circus and I believe that there's even in the final story, Ned talks about that transition from the circus to the service. So I always, and then in, in the night manager, it's just the service. And in, in subsequent Carry books, which aren't specifically tied in with those ones, aren't necessarily in the same literary world, but it's still always the service that he refers to it as. Whereas in his, in his early novels, it was always the circus, a distinctly fictional alternative to the real service whereas the service feels much more real world 
so we can picture it in the real world headquarters. You know, it's interesting that, well, just that this transition is chronicled in his world, you know, so it could be that we, we got scenes there earlier, but that's in reading his books. That's when I start picturing the actual headquarters once it's become the service instead of the circus. Nice. Talking about the being at the service headquarters, it's only one room that we're privy to. You know, it's it's all just a conference between that representative from the legal department you mentioned earlier and Proctor and his boss, who we talked about before, is another archetype of Le Carre and other spy uh, fiction, someone who's inexplicably gotten to the top by never taking a stand on anything. Um, you know, and even while Proctor's trying to figure out what he's what he's thinking, he's like, or is he just sitting on the fence waiting for something else to to determine this uh, the fate of Edward is what they're discussing in that scene. But yeah, I mean, how how better do you, criticize a bureaucracy than setting the one scene within one office in a conversation with someone from the legal department like that <laughs> you know that setting claustrophobic you know you're in hr you're in you know like we can all recognize this in the bureaucracies we deal with it's not exotic <laughs> it's not it's uh claustrophobic and sort of awful yeah all right. Well, I think that covers the settings in Silverview. So that's going to call it for this episode. Again, links to various things discussed in the show notes today, like that documentary and some of the other things. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review. And if you want to drop us a comment on the website or on Twitter, you can find us at LaCaraCast on Twitter or LaCaraCast.com. You can follow me on Twitter as I talk about non-LaCarai stuff at Spyrite. Next week, we will be returning to talk more about Silverview. This time, we'll be talking about the plot, specific plot details, and the spying that we see in Silverview. So come back, because I think we're going to have a lot to talk about there. Until next time, thanks for listening. Like what you're listening to? There's more like it. Barbican Station explores the spy world of Slough House and the Slow Horses created by author Mick Heron. Find it online at slough.house or in your favorite podcast app under Barbican Station. Spybrary's Spy Rewind uses one episode of a classic spy TV show like Mission Impossible, Alias, or Get Smart, to talk about the show as a whole. It's at spybrary.com or search for Spybrary in your podcast app. Like the Wolf is a podcast dedicated to the Nero Wolf mystery series created by Rex Stout. The podcast has reviews of all of his stories, plus interviews with a wide variety of wolf fans. Find it in your podcatcher under Like the Wolf or at likethewolf.com. That's wolf with an E. They're all novel podcasts, and you can find them all if you type novel.network in your browser. That's novel.network.